Bibles, please open up to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8 as we continue our studies through the book of Isaiah. And tonight's message from Isaiah to Israel is a warning of God's judgment. A warning of judgment. In Hebrews 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And the prophets gave their messages in different ways. Isaiah had already told them that the Assyrians were coming. And that was last week in chapter 7. He had already told them that the Assyrians were coming and that they were going to overthrow Judah. And now Isaiah, using a symbolical name, repeats his message. But here's the thing. Because wicked people aren't terrified by any threats, it was necessary that Isaiah's prediction should be repeated and confirmed by some outward sign. Now, we don't know how God spoke to Isaiah here, but chapter 8 predicts the invasion of Emmanuel's land, or Judah, by the king of Assyria. God had kept back all invasions from his people for over 500 years. But now God opens the floodgates and he lets an enemy cover the land like a flood. God's people are putting their trust in a partnership with their heathen neighbors for help rather than looking to God for help. They're looking for some other source of help than their God. And then the chapter ends with a warning against spiritualism, which was the last resort of the people who have rejected God's word. And when you reject God's word and you reject God, you, you, you resort to just about any means that's available and that you might think help you out of desperation. And out of des- desperation, they turn to demons for help. So the end's going to be trouble, it's going to be darkness, and it's going to be suffering for the people. So let's begin in chapter 8 with verse 1. <clears throat> and it reads... Moreover, the Lord said to me, that is Isaiah, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Now you think the name Shir Jashub in chapter 7 was bad, but this one, it's said to be the longest name in the Bible. How, how, man, how would you like to call your kid by that name every day? But there's a reason why God wants Isaiah To give his sons these symbolic names. The reason is in verse 18. If you jump down to verse 18, it'll tell you. The children whom the Lord has given me, Isaiah says, we are for signs and wonders in Israel. So both of his sons, Shear, Yashub, and Meher, Shalal, Hashbaz, both, both his sons' names are signs and they're names that have a message. Meher Shalal Hashbaz means hasten the booty or hasten the spoil, which is quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. And the soldiers would shout these words, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, uh, to their fellow soldiers as they defeated and plundered their enemies. The boy's name is also a message for King Ahaz, the king of Judah. He's a godless man and God is trying to reach King Ahaz. And he tells Isaiah there in verse 1 to make a large signboard, <clears throat> a large sign, and clearly write this name on it. Meir Shalal Hashbaz. 
Then he said, hang it up where everybody can see it. Everybody can read it. God wants this boy's name written down so that the most humble person in the kingdom will see it and they'll understand it. Again, God is trying to reach King Ahaz. First through Isaiah's firstborn son, Jahir Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. And then through this second son's name, which means hasten the booty or hasten the spoil. The second son's name is to ensure King Ahaz that God will take care of his people's enemies. Now look at verse 2. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrekiah. So Isaiah says, I asked Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zebrekiah, both names, both known as honest men. He said, I want them to, to witness what I'm doing. Uriah means Jehovah is my light. Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. And Zebrekiah means Jehovah will bless. So one witness says by his name, Jehovah is my light. And the other says Jehovah's purpose is to bless. And the fruit of light and blessing is the grace of God. In other words, God will never forget his people. In everything that Isaiah does, there's a message for the people. Isaiah is acting out and writing out his message so that the people will understand it. The book of Isaiah is kind of a picture story. And Jesus, if you know, uh, and you do, Jesus used the same method in his teaching in the Gospels. Because people will look at a picture. We're visual people. You know, we always say, you, you know, I, I, I'd rather see it. You've got to show me. I need to see something. And because God knows how we are, he tries to get a message across to these people <clears throat> by using a picture. Verse 3. Then Isaiah says, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now the prophetess that Isaiah goes to, this, the prophetess is Isaiah's wife. And she, his wife is called a prophetess, not because she prophesied, but because she was the wife of a prophet. She gives birth to a son. The second son here gives his name that God picked out before he was born. Verse 4, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my mother and my father, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Israel. Isaiah says, before the child can say mommy and daddy, the Assyrians will invade Syria and Samaria and they will carry away the abundance of Damascus and the riches of Samaria. Verses 5 through 8. The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son, now therefore behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, and that's the Euphrates rivers, the waters of the Euphrates river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach, reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. <clears throat> this is another important passage. It says here that the people refused the waters of Shiloh. 
The word Shiloh means sent. In other words, they refused the peace that God offered them, the peace that God sent them. A peace represented by this gentle flowing stream, the waters of Shiloh. And then in contrast, we see in verse 7 here, the waters of the river, the Euphrates River, strong and mighty. The Euphrates River is where Assyria was located. And these waters, it says here, is going to come down like a flood. So the, uh, the, the flood waters of the Euphrates represents God's judgment. And they're compared to the gentle wire, uh, waters of Shiloh. God is giving a message to his people using these two rivers. Again, Shiloh was a softly flowing little stream. The message in this soft flowing little stream here is that you'll hear if you have an ear for God. It's a message that's sweeter than the soothing, rippling sound of the stream itself. It's the story of grace, of Mount Zion, which stands in contrast to Mount Sinai, which is symbolic of the Mosaic law. Moriah was where Abraham offered his son, where David bought the threshing floor from Onan, and where Solomon built the temple. And at Calvary, where Jesus was crucified, it speaks of grace. Moriah is where God provided himself a lamb and he spared Abraham's son, but he didn't spare his own. So here God is speaking grace to King Ahaz. He's saying to him, I will spare you if only you will turn to me. And then in verse eight, it says, and he shall pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. In other words, God, what, what he's saying here, verse 8, is God is going to allow the Assyrians to overthrow or overflow the land of Judah, but he'll never let them take Jerusalem. Verse 9. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Here God announces his displeasure against this confederacy. And that's this partnership of heathen nations. And and they're coming together and they're a substitute for God. Instead of King Ahaz going to God, he substitutes the help of God by joining together with these heathen nations to protect them against the judgment that was coming. This is a warning against nations who join together against God's land. Starting with chapter 13, there's a series of messages to the nations that surround Israel. Or at least some of them who had anything to do with Israel in that day. And we're going to find that God's judgments will come upon them. That section starts with verse 13. It goes to chapter 35. It's mostly filled or fulfilled prophecy. But God says that the nations will never hinder his purposes here on earth. Whatever God says is going to be done, will be done. It will come to pass. The nations of the world today, we can see very clearly that they no longer seek seek wisdom. The wisdom of God. They no longer seek the counsel of God. But God has a purpose and God's purpose is going to overcome. It's going to come come to pass. And if a nation goes in the other direction... Against God, God's judgment will come upon that nation. Verses 10 and 12, through 12. <clears throat> Take counsel together, notice, but it will come to nothing. 
Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Verse 12 again, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Isaiah says, Don't be like this people. They're always afraid that somebody's plotting against them. Don't fear for the things that they fear. Don't take on their worries. Judah isn't to be worried by this partnership of Syria and Samaria. Fear is what caused those in the north to unite. It's what caused them to gather these these, these confederacies together and to unite rather than go to God. God urges his people here, don't be afraid. In other words, they are not to become partners with the heathen nations, which probably would have been Egypt. And later on, they'll become partners with Egypt, and that will bring great disaster to the land. And again, verse 8, Judah is Emmanuel's land. So it can't be conquered unless Emmanuel allows it to be conquered. Now, the conspiracy that's mentioned in verse 12 refers to the attempt to terrify Judah by the conspiracy, this this uniting between Syria and Samaria, this mentioned back in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Look at verses 13 and 14 now. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Notice that. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now we're dealing with prophecies about Jesus Christ. They are to fear God and to depend upon God. Now God will either be their salvation or he will be a stumbling stone, a stone of stumbling to them. When you fear God, you don't fear anything else. But when you don't fear God, you fear everything else. You're afraid of everything. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block <clears throat> and to the Greeks foolishness. Jesus said, you are either going to fall on this stone, speaking of himself, and you'll be broken. Again, speaking of himself. He says, Fall on him for salvation. Rest on him, who is the only foundation, and you'll be saved. Or he, the stone, Jesus Christ, will fall on you. And he'll judge you, and it will grind you to powder. You know, the picture of maybe is, is, is this, this 10-ton stone. It just is standing out there. Now, would you rather, you know, he's basically, would you rather walk into that stone, bump into that stone in some way, or have that stone fall on you. Obviously, I'd rather bump into it, walk into it, or however I, 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 you know, cross its path. But I know definitely I don't want it falling on me. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving here. You know, Christ crucified to the Jews become a stumbling block. It was a stumbling block. But Jesus said, if, if, if you fall on this stone, all right, and, and you'll allow yourself to be broken. You know, if you fall on him for salvation, you rest on him, you'll be saved. 
or in the other, other way around, the stone will fall on you and judge you, and he, the stone, will ground you to powder. So the Lord will either be a sanctuary or a stone of stumbling. You know, it, it, the choice is, is, is yours. You can accept Jesus Christ or you can reject him. Now, in the King James Version, in this verse 13, the first part, it says, Sanctify the Lord of hosts, where it says, Hallow him here. Sanctify the Lord of hosts. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is what God's people need to do. They need to sanctify God in their hearts. The problem today is there's no, there's no exalted, exalted, high-minded thinking about God. There's no lofty thoughts about God. There's a lack of reverence for God today. There's a lack of reverence for God and His Word today. We need to sanctify the Lord in our hearts. Because there are so many people today who are not convinced that the Lord is God. Now, have you ever asked yourself that question, why? Why Why is there such a hostility towards God? Why don't they believe that God is God and who he says he is? Why is that? As we're, and when we get to Acts next week, we, we see that we were to be and are to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. If people believed that God is in your church on Sunday morning, they wouldn't be looking for something to do on Sunday morning. They'd be with us in church. But have we, including myself, convinced them that our light and our good works, does that prove to them that Jesus lives? And, and I can't wait get, to get to the book of Acts because, man, I was, again, I haven't been through it for a while. We haven't been through it for a while. But Christianity is about Jesus. It's not about his teaching. It's not about a bunch of do's and don'ts or rules. It's not about an attitude. It's about a person. Jesus. And are we reflecting that person? Do people see Jesus in us? Or do they see something way offline? Because when Luke began to write Acts, he said to the Theophilus that he was writing the things that Jesus began to teach and to do. In other words, the teaching and the doing had to match. What we teach versus what we do, do they match? What we learn from the Word of God is it seen in the way that we live? And usually that's the biggest problem with the world when they talk about the church and Christianity. They say one thing and they do another. And I'm really excited to get into the book of Acts because again, it teaches us that, it shows us that. 
That's why the church turned the world upside down. They said, I want to see what is going on in that church. I want to see what it is about those people. They're different from everybody else. And thousands were said the church was born because of what they did. When the Holy Spirit fell on them, he said, you will be witness. Wait wait in Jerusalem. Wait for the power from on high to fall, and then you will be witnesses to me. You can't do it on your own. Wait for the power, the promise of the Father, and then you shall be witnesses to me. It shows us how important the power of the Holy Spirit is. And we need to get back to the basics. And we're going to find out what those things are as we go back through the book of Acts. And like I said, I'm so excited to go back and just relive those things. And now if we want to know what the church should be like, we don't look at it today. We go back to the book of Acts and we look at the church in the book of Acts. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. This message has been a message up to this point of just nothing but doom. It was all from, you know, verses 1 through 15, beginning with chapter 7, was just showing that God's judgment was coming for King Ahaz and the nation of Israel who were joining forces with heathen nations to protect themselves instead of going to God. So up to now, it's been a message of nothing but but doom. But now here, God gives a, a command to Isaiah, that he, and he says here to Isaiah to bind up. Bind up the testimony. But God gives this command to Isaiah. It means to preserve. Bind up, preserve this testimony that you have. That is God's revelation. Bind it up. Preserve God's teaching. In the sense that he is to close it, shut it up in the, in the, the, the close up the spiritual uh, things there in the hearts of the disciples and leave it there. Paul said, allow the word of God to dwell in you, dwell in you richly. To find a home in your heart. Verse 17. And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. The person who waits is excited and waits with patient expectation. Now, we know how hard it is to wait. For me, it is one of the hardest things. I, I, I am not a waiting person. I see a line, I'm gone. I don't care how hungry I am. I see the gas station line, I'm gone. I don't care how low I am. I'm not going to... It, it's terrible. I... I But again, it's one of those things that, you know. But here's the thing. The psalmist said in Psalm 62, 5, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. My hope is in him. Now, if we hope in in God and we expect God to come through, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait with excitement. 
I'm going to wait with joy, with great expectation, because I expect God to do something, because he's promised me he would. And here it says that the Lord has hidden his face from the people. When punishment and destruction came on the nation, God hid his face from them. The whole nation, specifically the southern kingdom, which was Judah, felt his wrath. And they were shut out of his presence. And so the nation rejected Isaiah's message, but Isaiah couldn't be blamed for that. But because they didn't accept the message, that doesn't mean that Isaiah failed. See, we're only called to give the message. Success and failure, that's God's doing. Not that God fails, but we look at it as success and failure many times when we serve God and what we're doing in our ministry. Well, I failed. Well, you know, if you did what God called you to do and you were doing it the way God called you to do it and the way we're instructed to, to, to serve God, we've done what we're supposed to do. Paul said some water, some plant, but God brings forth the increase. First Corinthians 4, 2 said a steward is to be found faithful. That's it. There's no parentheses that says successful, eloquent, brilliant, whatever. Faithful. And when we stand before God, he's not going to ask me, how many people did you end up with the church? How big was the account? How big was the... He's not going to ask me of that. But of course, he already knows. Were you faithful to preaching the word? Because that's what I called you to do. You see, the Holy Spirit in the word of God does the rest. The Holy Spirit opens the word of God to the person. It, it, it convicts the person from the word of God. And they either reject it or they respond to it. So because God has hidden his face from the people. And God you know, hid from them. The whole nation, they felt his wrath and they were shut out of his presence. That doesn't mean that, that, that Isaiah failed. He took the message. The true disciples of God, they receive God's word and they keep it in their hearts. And by faith, Isaiah was willing to wait patiently for God's word to be fulfilled. Verse 18. He says, here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are, speaking of him and his sons, we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Isaiah here and his two sons are signs and wonders. Shear, Joshub, uh, is a sign of the return of a, remem- a remnant of Judah at the end of the 70 years of captivity. Meir Shalal Hashbaz is a sign of the coming judgment of the captivity of Judah. And as signs, they would, they, they, they would be promises of something that was still to be done. And as warnings... They were special demonstrations of the power of God or signs or symbols of things that are still to happen. 
So they're set apart in Israel as expressions of God's power and promises that God will be true to his promises. There will be a remnant. God's people, there will always be a remnant. And and, and so these are promises to God or to the people from God. He says in verse 18, Here am I and the children whom the Lord, notice, whom the Lord has given me. This This is significant. Look at verse 18 again. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord. No, we're from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. The children that were given to Isaiah were to serve a purpose. They were to serve a purpose. Children are looked at in Scripture as gifts from God. The psalmist said in Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And over the years, more and more, I have seen this mindset, even among Christians, not to have children. And there are various reasons why that's not to take place. It may be a medical thing or whatever it might be, but... But the main thing that I hear is that many people look at children as a burden and not a blessing. And today, a lot of people are having such, again, heartbreaking problems with with rebellious children that that some think it's just as well you don't have them. Yeah, it can be hard raising kids. But they're still a blessing. You know, they say, well, look at all the violence in this world, the terrorism, look at the economy. Look at the sexual perversity, the the child kidnapping and child abuse. It's not safe to have children in this way, so it's best not to bring them into this kind of of a world. But the Bible doesn't teach that perspective. The Bible says children are a heritage from the Lord. Listen to what God had to say in Genesis 1, 27 through 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. No parentheses. No but ifs. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. What if Elijah's parents thought negatively about having children? What if they would have said, you know, this is a wicked world we live in. I don't think we should have any children. And besides King Omri, man, he's such a wicked man. He's the worst king we've ever had. I think it would be best if we didn't have any children. Moses' parents in Acts chapter 7, verse 19 through 20. Listen to what it says there. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn sworn to Abraham. Remember that God said that Abraham, you'll have children as, as many as the sands of the sea. When that promise drew near, it says the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born. Notice, at this time, when all this was going on, 
thank God Moses' parents would say, you know what? Remember that decree went out to kill all the baby boys? They still had the baby Moses. Moses was born during this time and was well-pleasing to God. The fruit of the womb, the Bible says, is his reward. God is the only one who can make a baby. He's the one who decides what race they will be born. He decides who will have rich parents or be born poor. He decides which babies will be born gifted and which ones will have birth defects. He decides whether they'll be born in this generation or generations from now. When he sends a baby to a family, it's because he has some wise and wonderful purpose in creating that particular child. F.W. Borum said, When God sees that in this poor old world a wrong needs writing or a truth needs preaching or a benefit needs inventing, he sends a baby into the world to do it. And that's why God sent a baby to be born over 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. From the Lord of hosts he came. It's from the Lord that Isaiah and his children are like signs and wonders. They had a purpose. The thought isn't just that they are signs and wonders from the Lord, but rather that Isaiah and the children are as signs and wonders from the Lord. They came specifically from God. It says, who dwells in Mount Zion. Most of the wicked nation was attracted to the temple. Outwardly, they were worshipers of Jehovah. Isaiah now points out to them that their confidence is in vain. Because it's Jehovah who dwells in the temple on Zion that has presented the Messiah and his own people for signs and wonders. Again, there are many who make an outward profession of faith, but their hearts are actually far from the Lord. Verse 19. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? God now speaks against spiritualism as a substitute for God's word. This is about fortune telling versus God's word. Spiritism. The temptation to worship idols, it's always there. Or always to worship something else. Here, unbelievers were tempting the believers by suggesting, hey, you guys should, should look for advice from the spirit world. This isn't just saying that someone might possibly make a suggestion. Because it was constantly being made, just like today. You know, we always see, you know, you, you call this number and the, the people on the line, oh, they'll tell you what your fortune says. They'll tell you how it looks for the future. And, you know, they tell you all these wonderful things. I can't believe they knew it, you know. They were right on. That's what I was thinking. When the temptation is suggested today to seek spiritualists, what should we do? What should true believers do? Seek God. The tempters here, the unbelievers, they seek the spirits. Like Saul did, the witch of Endor. There were, there were others who made it their business to call up the dead. 
And there were ghosts, demons, spirits who supposedly had knowledge about the future. And different events. Spirits who may have known, who may have been known to the one asking the questions. And like birds that chirp and tweet, Isaiah said the spirits whisper and mutter. This seems to be a reference to the way the soothsayers called up their spirits. Or the way they delivered their messages. And the people ask her, well, shouldn't, shouldn't, a, shouldn't, shouldn't, a people, shouldn't people seek their God? And the answer is yes. But a nation should not seek spirits. They should seek their God. And when wicked people suggest that God's people shouldn't, cons- uh, I'm sorry, when wicked people suggest that God's people should consult the spirits, Just like the nations seek their gods. He says you should seek your God who is the Lord. Other nations seek their gods which are in vain. But you people of the true and living God, you should seek him. Why would you seek the dead? On behalf of the living. The wicked temptation is always there in front of people. In tough times and in personal trouble, God's people can't forget about God. And that detestable practice of consulting the spirits, that's like denying that God exists. I'm going to talk to these, these spirits. Again, it's like saying, well, God doesn't exist. And these spirits, Isaiah said, they whisper and they mutter. They don't speak openly. They don't give clear-cut information. They're totally different from the clear and honest answer that God gives through the prophets. Through thus says the Lord. If other nations seek advice from their gods, which aren't real, we who know the Lord should seek his advice all the time. At all times. In Old Testament days, this was done through the prophets. Today, in New Testament times, God has given us his infallible word, the Bible. And we, when we want to consult God, we need to turn to the word of God because it's the words that are God's words. The Bible doesn't contain God's words. It is God's word. And there's a difference. We might read the Bible and say, oh, this is something that that, that God would say. No, it is something God said. There's a huge difference. The Bible contains God's words. Not only is spiritualism wicked, but it's foolish. Because it's silly to consult dead people to, to give advice for those that are living. Verse 20. To the law and to the testimony... If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. If we're going to do any seeking, it should be, it says here, notice, in the law and the testimony, which means in in the instructions and teachings of God's word. These are the standards that all opinions and things that are said are to be judged by. If somebody says something, you go to the word of God, especially if they're talking about things of God, you go to the word. 
And if you speak something, you go to the word to make sure that it is right on before you speak it. If anybody doesn't speak in accordance with the law and the testimony, notice what it says here. There's no light in them. That is, whoever doesn't speak in accordance with these standards, these instructions and teachings of God's word, they are living in darkness of sin and unbelief. That being the case, how can they give light? How can they give light? Even in times of calamity, God's people are to listen to the law and the testimony. To his teachings and instructions. We have a written word that can be consulted at all times. For all things. It's the law. Because it tells man exactly what God requires of him. It's also the testimony. Because it speaks forth God's will. And it proves the fact that it's from God. There's a lot of counsel that goes out today that does not agree with the Word of God. It's not in line with the Word of God. And if those who give counsel aren't in line with the infallible Word of God, it's because there's no light of salvation in them. It's also true of those who receive unbiblical counsel that there's no light in what they receive. If you receive unbiblical counsel, there's no light in what you're receiving. To listen to somebody's words whose resources for those words are darkness rather than the clear light of the word of God, again, is foolishness. I don't want to hear something that, that, that's, that's of a dark source. I want to hear something that's going to give me light, that's going to help me to see. Verse 21 through 22 as we close. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Forsaking God brings definite consequences. Giving counsel that's contrary to the law and the testimony will cause them to one day forsake God. And then... After they've forsaken God, when they become desperate in their need. And when they go through the, it says here, when they go through the devastated land, when they go from one place to another looking for help, there aren't, there isn't going to be anybody. There's not going to be anybody. There's not going to be anything to help them. There's not going to be anybody around to help them. Because when you forsake the Lord, you will be forsaken of the Lord. And when calamity comes, the wicked aren't very useful. When a man is down and out, and how many times have you seen this? They become angry. They curse everything and everybody that could help them. But that's what happens when you adopt the attitude, I don't need God. And when you live like you don't need God. So after rejecting God's plan for them, the people of Judah blame God for their trials. And boy, is that typical. Why did God do this to me? Why did God let this happen? If you're living in sin, it's the result of your sin. It's the consequences of your sin. You can choose to live in sin, but you can't choose, to, to, you can't choose the outcome or the consequences. You can't choose how it's going to turn out in the end. 
And people continually blame God for their problems. So how do you respond to and deal with the bitter consequences of your own choices? Who do you blame? Instead of blaming God, look for ways to grow through your failures. In other words, grow through what you go through. Grow through what you go through. No matter what direction the wicked look in, in verse 22, it says there's no help for them. So verses 21 and 22 shows us what happens in the end when you live a life of disobedience, which will lead you into spiritualism in the end. And the result, it says, is trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish. And disobedience to God will take you there to trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish every single time. Father, thank you again for this great passage, Lord. And and Father, teach us. Teach us, God. Father, the law and the testimony, God. May we come to the light. May we bask in the light of your glow, God. The Holy Spirit, Lord, who gives us light, who gives us power, who guides us into all truth, God. For your word says that it's like a lamp into our path and a light to our feet. It takes us through life step by step. So, Lord, open your word to us, Lord. May the Holy Spirit just impress upon us the importance of your word, Lord. May we not take it for granted, God. May we not look at it or read it as if we were reading some magazine or newspaper, God. But that we're hearing your words spoken from you, from from God the Holy Spirit to us. He may lead us and guide us into all truth. And that He will keep our path, keep our feet from evil, and keep us from the evil road. And so, Father, we love you. We thank you, God. Be with us through the rest of the week, Father. Protect us. Keep us safe. Watch over us, Lord, until we meet here again, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I guess as I